Hi, everyone. My name is Chad Nitschke, co-founder and CEO of Bunker, and also host of this podcast, Ready, Set, Work. Ready, Set, Work is a podcast series focused on the future of work, specifically highlighting all different perspectives from the gig economy to on-demand platforms and more. Join us each episode to hear from thought leaders paving the way toward the future of work. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Ready, Set, Work. Today, I'm talking with Mike Kinder, co-founder and CEO of Variable. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I wondered if you could start off just by telling us a little bit about uh, Variable and just how the platform works. Sure. Yeah, we, um, we like to think of ourselves as the tip of the spear for next generation manufacturing. And we're tackling the most fundamental problem in manufacturing, and that's labor flexibility. That's really what constrains most manufacturers. It's um, kind of the reason why there's long lead times, why there's not enough customization, why it's really hard to be responsive and competitive. So we're tackling that with uh, you know, what you'd call a vertical marketplace uh, geared towards manufacturing labor. And we're doing it in uh, some unique ways that, that is specifically tailored to this kind of work. So the idea is to fractionate the landscape, usher more people into the manufacturing space and give businesses a, uh, a new option, uh, a way to access capacity in a way that they haven't been able to, to do in the past. Yeah, that's great. No, I, I really like the term fractionalize the landscape. Uh, that one, that uh, kind of sticks. I like that. It makes a lot of yeah. sense. You know, it's a lot like cloud computing. You know, when you think about labor, um, you know, labor is treated as a a variable cost technically, but it's, it doesn't behave that way. You know, it's a fixed cost. You, you know, plan your head count, you plan that out indefinitely and you kind of hope that the needs of the business match what you planned. And, you know, when you think of cloud computing, that's not how that operates. You pay by, you know, pay by the bit as you go and labor should behave a lot like that. And uh, that's how, what we're trying to mimic. Cool. And I'm curious. So I always like to hear uh, founding stories. So what was your uh, inspiration for uh, starting Variable? Yeah, I've lived through it. I, uh, <laughs> I've done manufacturing my entire career. That first decade or so, front lines manufacturing, uh, shop supervision, things like that. And uh, later got into, call it digital operations or, or rather manufacturing technology or industrial technology more broadly. And a lot of great technology out there right now. A lot of exciting technology, but but that's kind of where it is. It's just technology. It's um, there's a stagnation in adoption, and there's a reason for that. You know, you take some of the more interesting technologies out there that are you know, machine to machine communication type technologies on the shop floor. And I'm talking. I'm going to talk primarily about the land of atoms and not the land of bits. But you know, when you're in the land of atoms, you can have machines talking to one another. You can have real-time performance monitoring. You can have a lot of this really cool thing in manufacturing. But if labor isn't flexible, those things uh, don't have a lot of value. And that's why you see a, a stagnation. So founding variable was uh, a way to get or to give those things a reason to exist. We'll start with what we thought was the most urgent need, the long pole in the tent, and that's, that's labor. So that's where we're at. Yeah, and I would imagine, I mean, um, I don't know a lot about manufacturing, but I would, I would think the industry has just struggled quite a bit to predict the level of demand at any, any given time. I mean, there's some seasonality to some products, um, 
but um, probably no time is more prescient than now, <laughs> like predicting demand for certain products. And I would imagine that flexibility is a huge help giving that to organizations. And, and I'm curious, uh, what do you see as kind of the biggest need you're filling for those companies? Um, and then, then also maybe the second question is for the, for the workers. Yeah, you named it, Chad. So it's all about flexibility. So when you think about what are the ways to win going forward for manufacturers, they have to be fast. They have to be fast and responsive. And you can kind of translate that towards uh, customer-centric or delight the customer, if you will. Um, you know, the days of waiting 12 weeks for a pump, that's just ridiculous. You know, if you've got a job site and you're a contractor, you're not going to wait 12 weeks for a pump. And if you've got a lot of people making pumps, whoever can get the pump their fastest wins. Um, that, that's the name of the game. And then the other one is how do you do that efficiently? So how do you compress lead times? How do you get things out to the market faster? How do you maintain a high on-time delivery? All these things are impossible to do when you're forecasting. And that's the problem. So there's always been this kind of tense relationship between forecasting and flexibility. So lean manufacturing is all about flexibility. And you, know, you can do things to, I guess, uh, position yourself uh, to take better advantage of flexibility. So things like production smoothing, that old lean technique. But you see these things kind of go back and forth over, over the years. Like recently, analytics has been a big push. And if I can just get better point of use information about my customers, then I'll be able to better forecast and I'll be, then I'll be able to have a more accurate plan. But the fact of the matter is you just can't predict what's going to, get, what's going to happen. So flexibility is your best opportunity to have the most control over the situation if, if, if you get that right. So that's what we think. The only way to really win in the future is to be really flexible and find a way to do that. Yep. No, that totally makes sense. And I would imagine manufacturing might be a little bit like the insurance industry in a sense that, you know, there are these set in stone ways of operating, you know, for those industries that have been around for a long time. And it's funny when you said, when you use the word fractional, it reminded me of the insurance industry a little bit in that, uh, you know, policies are sold on an annual basis traditionally, and maybe that's not the way that businesses need to consume them. And so we like started to create more usage based uh, products. And so it's it kind of a similar analog, I think, to uh, maybe what you guys are doing at, at Variable. And I'm, I'm curious, um, in your discussions and kind of in the journey of Variable, um, do, did you find that businesses typically realize that they have an instant need for something like Variable? Or was there kind of a period of you know, socialization or education, um, particularly since it's an industry that's operated maybe the same way for a lot of years? Yeah. Well, first off, I really like your analogy with insurance because at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about pooling. And if you can pool variation uh, up to a level of analysis that kind of optimizes a group, then you have a great solution. And that's how we look at manufacturing. So, so imagine, and this used to happen to me all the time, you know, imagine you have an industrial park with 10 businesses and all of those businesses have different cycles. You know, they've got different seasonality. They've got different day-to-day -day variation. And every single one of those businesses trying to optimize a supply and demand plan at the local level. If you can elevate that vantage point to the group, if you can elevate that vantage point to the industrial park, well, then you have kind of a coopetition there where everybody is kind of leveraging one another to get productivity benefits. So that's, that's really how our model works. So the, um, to your point about kind of changing the landscape of manufacturing, it's old and stubborn. You know, the thing about manufacturing is it's hard. It's really hard. It's like uh, yeah. conducting a symphony. You know, you've got 
incoming materials, you've got people, you've got engineers, you've got quality folks, safety, you've got inventory, you've got a lot of things to optimize all at once. And, and the challenge with lean, uh, which would be, I think, the prevailing methodology, you could say, is you've got to really optimize that like in real time and keep it optimized. It's really hard. It's really hard to keep that all uh, timed up exactly right. You know, material arriving just when the person needs it and one person moving material to the next person right when they need it. So it's, it's, it's very precise. It requires that really high level of precision. So it works though. You know, that's the thing. It does work. And driving change in manufacturing, there's, there's a lot at stake, you know, so a disruptive event is, could be catastrophic. So naturally manufacturers are resistant to change. So our point of view is now is the time to play offense. You know, you've got, you've got a stable operating model. We're not trying to disrupt it. We're trying to augment it. We're trying to say, uh, you can push past this and you're going to have to, because if you don't, somebody's going to come along and figure it out. It's like being Barnes and Noble in 1995, you know, you've got great <laughs> yeah. coffee and you got books there, but somebody's about to have better coffee uh, <laughs> and somebody's about to have faster books too. So, uh, that's our point of view. And I think, I think it's real because you actually see this happening. You, have, you see this happening now. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm curious, like when you have discussions with those clients, like um, it, part of it is probably that competitive dynamic, right? Of like, hey, you, you need to do this to, you know, kind of best support your business. And or if you don't do this, like your competitors are going to start doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and are there, are there other things that you use? So maybe if I'm a client and I'm um, going to use flexible staffing for kind of the first time. Um, are there other things that you highlight to kind of bring their, their minds to ease or kind of what are their top concerns that you usually hear? Yeah, well, it's all about value creation, you know, so one of the beauties about doing something evangelical, and I think what we're doing is evangelical. It's, 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 it's new, yep. you know? Um, so we're creating the space that we're trying to occupy in real time. So we're, we don't have the luxury of pointing to, a you know next closest solution and saying say we're better than that or we're cheaper than that or we have higher quality than that we don't we, we can't do that so we have to explain uh how do you create value so more like a maybe a consultant would explain that um and what we're competing against is the status quo and most manufacturers understand the status quo i mean they live through it it doesn't take a lot to explain um where the opportunity might be so you can kind of think of it like a like demand is a curve. It's always a curve and it's an unpredictable curve. And your job as an operations manager in manufacturing is to chase that curve and optimize. But you're trying to optimize a fixed supply around a curvy line, an unpredictable curvy line. And best case, usually I find is that the top manufacturers do that in 13 week increments. But if you have a one week lead time, 13 week planning doesn't do you a lot of good. You don't know what's going to happen over those next 12 weeks especially if you're trying to get really competitive and you get a one day lead time. I mean, 99% of that horizon is useless. So if you can shrink, if you can shrink your planning horizon to where it isn't even really a planning horizon and you can get it aligned with the demand curve, then you can create maximum value and you can grow your business that way. So mostly well, what happens, I used to have clients like this in manufacturing that would say, Mike, I can't grow. Every year I grow like one or 2%. How do I grow? And, you know, we'd explore a whole bunch of different avenues. We'd, we'd explore how they're doing on the commercial side. We'd explore how they're doing uh, on the quality side, the engineering side, the products side. But often you get down just to the nuts and bolts of the operations. And you say, okay, so you're publishing, let's say, a two-week lead time. And the market seems to like that. 
And then you get six weeks worth of orders at that lead time. And what do you do? You push your lead time out to eight weeks. And then the market blocks at that. And the market says, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm no good with eight weeks. I'm good with two weeks. So then you spend the next six weeks whittling that down back to two weeks and no orders are coming in. And then you get down to two weeks and you get six weeks worth of orders again. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're, you're, you're signaling to the market how much you're willing to produce. And that's not, that's not a way to grow. You know, if you're actually listening to the market, the market's telling you at two weeks, you can really grow your business, but not at, not at eight weeks. So get it down and hold it at two weeks. But then the conversation goes, but I can't do that. I can't hold it. I can't hold that commitment static when I have a static uh, supply, you know, when, mm-hmm. when my capacity is static. And we're going, well, don't leave your capacity static anymore. That's the answer. And if no opportunities exist to flex capacity, I'm going to give you one. Here's one. Here's one good way to do it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I'm curious, kind of piggybacking on that. I mean, I feel like the world is obviously quickly changing. And so one way that the world has changed is just the rise in like e-commerce and dropship, you know, business models that I'm, I'm certain have brought new challenges to the manufacturing industry and opportunity uh, for that matter. And so I'm curious from your perspective, um, what are maybe some of the biggest changes in the industry relating to that and biggest opportunities uh, relating to that? It's got to be significant. Yeah, that's one. I mean, that, that, that's a big one. Now, there, there are benefit beneficiaries of that, of course. You know, if you're a, a 3PL, man, there's a lot of business to be won. You know, so with all the e-commerce going around, uh, you should be absolutely opportunistic. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a boon. It's an economic boon for those guys. But what, what's also happening, though, is, you know, imagine, I call this the Amazon effect. You know, so in your personal life, you can go in and buy whatever you want. And it's on your doorstep in a day or two days. You know, the other day I was buying a, a pair of sneakers and I go in there and there's like 50 different variants, you know, different colors, different shoelaces, different size, but all on my doorstep in a day or two days. So what's happening is those people that are getting used to that in their personal lives, they're now walking into their jobs as buyers, you know, back to the pump example. So now I'm the buyer on behalf of the contractor and I'm buying pumps and it's going to take 12 weeks. No, no, I'm, I'm used to getting the things I want in my personal life. And you can get, you're getting toilet paper and things like that. Well, maybe not now, but you can get that on your doorstep in a day. So why does it take 12 weeks to get a $500 pump right on my doorstep? No, I'm not going to settle for that. That's unacceptable. So that's one of the big mega trends that's hitting manufacturers. And manufacturers are going, I'm not set up to do that. I mean, Henry Ford said the only way to do mass production is with a standard product. That's the only way to do it. So if you're mass producing, uh, or I'm sorry, you was talking about assembly line. But if you're doing mass production on assembly line, a standard product is the only way to do that. Lean tries to address it with you know, ways that you can kind of flex people in a cell and what, but it's really hard to do. So at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to rise to the challenge because I, I don't see um, you know, the, the public sentiment, the market itself saying, okay, you can't do it. We'll revert back to the old expectation. <laughs> right. No way. Yeah. So there's that going on, but there's a lot more. I mean, there's, um, you know, and some of these are really old challenges. So we talk about the supply demand balancing problem in real time. That's really hard to do. The changing customer expectations. That's really, that's really hard to adapt to. Changing demographics. This is a big one. You know, so the average age in manufacturing is 50 right now. So what's going to happen in the next couple of decades? Are we, are, are we doing a one in one out like, like the bars down downtown Dallas? You know, no, we're not, we're not getting lines down the street for people to, to replace the aging workforce. It's just not a, it's not an attractive field 
for for millennials. Um, so we got to figure out a way to replace it. The uh, technology itself is a challenge. So you're looking at the landscape of all these things that you could do for your business. Um, first thing that comes to mind is where do I start? You know, and, and how do I assemble? How do I architect a solution that actually makes sense for my business when there's no roadmap out there to do it? All the while you're wondering what your competitors are doing. You have no idea. So you don't know if this is being adopted. You don't know how you should adopt it. You don't know if what you adopt is going to be compatible with your infrastructure or the future infrastructure. Uh, geopolitical uncertainty. I mean, this is a huge one. I mean, take right now. You know, you've got, you had two decades of Chinese outsourcing and that was the best game in town. It was the easiest way to take cost down. That doesn't look so hot right now. You know, that's not a great option. And those that did it, over the last 10 years are regretting it. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of mega trends all converging right now that are really putting manufacturers in a pinch. Yeah, and I'd love to hear more of your insight on that topic. I mean, we can't really talk about supply chain or workforce structure or e-commerce without talking about kind of the real point in time and uh, COVID-19. And uh, I'm just curious, could you touch on kind of how the pandemic has impacted the manufacturing and supply chain industry and maybe what kind of you know challenges and opportunities it's uh, created uh, for them and for you yeah well there's a number of ways to to have this discussion i think there's a there's a forward-looking conversation that's positive and a backwards-looking conversation that's negative um maybe i'll allude to the positive side uh and then come back to that but sure. i think there's going to be a, a windfall here i i think I think we understand what went wrong. Uh, I think uh, people are going to have to to own up to those mistakes, but there's no, there's going to be no way around it that U.S. is going to be the beneficiary of a lot of new manufacturing volume, whether it's new or returning. That, that's just going to happen, um, and it's going to be partially policy driven, but I think majority operationally driven. And so that leads to the negative. You know, what what have we done? So take just the, the base statistics. We had over 20 million manufacturing jobs in 1979 at, at peak. And now we've got, I think something like 12 million. So more or less we have half the jobs, but manufacturing GDP has never been higher. It's never been higher. So what have we done? Well, we've outsourced a lot of the, a lot of the supply chain that goes into these OEMs, you know, like, uh, like take a Boeing aircraft, for example. You know, the final aircraft is assembled in Everett or the Seattle area, but most of the components come elsewhere. And we've outsourced that. And we've outsourced what some people would call low value activity. I don't call it that. Um, but we've outsourced that. And we've outsourced it mostly to China. But all the while, China's gained about 50 million manufacturing jobs over that time. Hmm. So what's happening is we're exposing a lot of myths about the space. And, and it's just people are going to have to, to be honest about it. Uh, one of which is the automation myth. So where is the automation? If we've taken 10 million jo jobs out of the US economy and replaced them with 50 million jobs in China, you know, and some in India, some in Mexico, uh, where's the automation? <laughs> right, the math doesn't, doesn't seem to work. <laughs> no, it doesn't, it doesn't. And where was the automation to save us on masks and ventilators? You know, wouldn't the robots have just popped those things out? You could wheel a robot <laughs> right. right into every hospital and it's popping out ventilators and masks. No, it's, it's not happening. Where are the 3D printers printing the masks? So it's exposing a lot of these myths, these myths that have been perpetuated um, because they're politically palatable myths. They're, they're myths like uh, 
hey, what are you going to do, man? It's, all, it's just automation. It's technology. What are you, a Luddite? You know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's the way of the future, man. Sorry about your job, but here we go. On to the future. But no, that's not what happened. It just the job got replaced. It got replaced somewhere else for cheaper. It was a labor arbitrage play. So we're learning that. And what's happened also is, is that's made our supply chains very vulnerable. You know, so when you're sole sourced to a supplier halfway across the world, um, you're not just beholden to that supplier, you're beholden to that supplier's regime, right? So, mm -hmm. okay, something might go wrong operationally, but something also might go wrong geopolitically. And both of those have happened. So we've, we're learning these lessons. And, and the sad thing is, you know, if you do the math on, and I did this a lot as a consultant, but if you do the math on an outsourcing play, you know, take something out of Cleveland and you move it to China, you're talking maybe $20 an hour replacing that with 70 cents an hour. So you have a pretty big labor arbitrage there. But labor only represents maybe 15 to 20% of the cost structure. Hmm. So your total cost out, it's not really that significant. But then you add back freight, you add back customs, you add back tariffs, you add back holding costs, you add back all of that. Uh, the cost of premium freight, for example, it almost washes the benefit away. You're usually left with single digits of profit benefit. And so that's the politically unpalatable explanation is, you know, I outsourced your job, but I didn't even have the, the courtesy of getting value from it. You know, we're, we're, we basically traded a job for air freight. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real shame. So we're unstable uh, in terms of supply chains. We're beholden to corrupt regimes. And we've seemingly done it all without a ton of benefit. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I'm curious, like if you had a crystal ball and could predict, and maybe you're already seeing and kind of hearing this uh, from your clients, but does this mean then that, I mean, even now, uh, manufacturers are saying, all right, how do we bring some of our supply, you know, back to the US? Um, are those things that you're seeing and hearing like literally today as a result of COVID? Um, and if you had a crystal ball to like predict, you know, two years from today, what do you think the biggest changes are in the manufacturing world as a result of all these changes? Yeah, th thanks for leading me back to the positive because that, that's, where <laughs> I, that, that's where I wanted to go or intended to go. Um, but it's right on a number of levels of analysis. So, you know, imagine that the problem starts off with, because you know, it's a good strategy, a good supply chain strategy to have a low cost buy and a high cost buy. So the idea is you're trying to get a blended cost that makes sense. And so if, let's say you're getting the bulk of your volume from a low cost provider and a portion of your volume from a local high co higher cost supplier, that blended cost is going to be you know, tolerable and you have a backup plan. You know, so if something were to happen you know, in India or China or something like that, I've got my local guy here that can step up and you know, go from... 20 or 30% to 50 or maybe even 100% in a pinch. And that seems to work. But what has happened is it's bureaucratic complacency over the last 20 years has just been to milk the same play. So if you arrive at like a 70-30 or an 80-20 uh, construct, well, it's a pretty cheap way to get that next cost reduction is to just go, well, you know what? 85-15 uh, looks pretty good. You know, 90-10, 95-5. So if, if you're at 90.10 or 95.5, you've, you've gone way over leveraged on your low cost buy. It's, in, it's, it's just not a robust supply chain strategy. So we're already seeing a lot of businesses looking at this and, and, and going, okay, 
yeah, we're totally exposed here. We, we missed the mark. We, we fell out of calibration. So now uh, we're going to get back to that ideal calibration. Now, if you think about that as a local supplier, though, you know, let's say you're a tier two auto supplier or something like that, and you're going from 5% of wallet to 20%, that's a 4x growth. You know, I mean, th that's huge. That's a massive opportunity. So our point of view is go get it, guys. Like now is the time to be opportunistic. Now is the time to take it back. You know, this has been kind of gradually taken from you over the last 25 years. Now is exactly the time to go play offense. Go get it back. Because a lot's changed since then. You know, the, the costs are different. Uh, manufacturing technology is different. Um, the value of customization is different if you want to quantify it that way. So being able to produce locally to the needs of the local market, that there's a huge premium in that. Manufacturers like it when their suppliers are local. There's a huge advantage to having local suppliers. So the local guys step up and rise to the occasion. So that's what we're trying to promote out there is don't let this opportunity go by because you're going to have a once in a lifetime opportunity to get this volume back. Yep. No, it definitely makes sense. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, this is probably obvious, but then how, how does a uh, variable kind of fit into that landscape and help solve for that challenges um, as manufacturers are thinking about bringing more things back to the U S yeah, I, I think there's a number of analogies you can use here, but you know, think of just like your classic sales and operations tension. So the sales guys will always say, oh man, if you could just produce this, I could bring in so many orders, you know? Yeah. And then the ops guys are going, well, show me the money, right? I'm not going to yeah. hire somebody and I'm not going to build it until you bring the order. in." so you have this like, you know, chicken and the egg dynamic yeah. there. And our point of view is don't let operations be the brakes on this. Like just go get the orders, go get the orders, then figure out a way to, to build them and produce them. And the only way you can do that is if you have a, a low friction way to scale, right? Because if you didn't, you're back to that old, that old problem. I mean, think about it. If, if tech startups had to buy servers these days, yeah. you know, that would be a nightmare. You know, you can't do that. You're, you're scaling inch by inch and you're paying you know, as a proportion of your, your growth. That's our point of view. It's like, go do that and then use this as a tool to allow you to scale up with essentially no friction, a zero cost to scale. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I'm, uh, I'm curious on this and I'm kind of naive to manufacturing process and uh, don't really, there's a lot that I don't understand about it. And so if I'm, let's say I'm a manufacturer today and I rely on <clears throat> China, uh, right? That's where all of my manufacturing is done. And all of a sudden due to this, due to COVID, I'm saying, you know what, I need to really shift this back to the U.S., and say it is, you know, something that is surmountable from like a number of units perspective. So it's not, you know, we're not talking like um, hundreds of millions of units. Um, and it's something that's, you know, maybe easily creatable, like some sort of electronic device or something where uh, supplies are available. How long does that take if you just say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to shift that back to the U.S. and start making that product? I mean, is this... Uh, how do you measure that? Is that, uh, I would assume it's not days, but is it, is it weeks? Is it months? Is it uh, probably not years, but uh, I don't know. Can you put some like framing around that? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good answer on questions like this is it depends. So that, you know, <laughs> yeah. on, 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 on one extreme, on one extreme, it's, there's not much lead time at all to it. So you can kind of imagine it like a, like a decrepit over, a decrepit infrastructure, you know, like imagine an old country road that's just kind of left to left to rot. You know, you can still drive down the road and with a little bit of repair, 
a little bit of maintenance, you can get that thing you know, flowing again. So that's kind of how it's like. So if you're building similar products uh, or the same product, and it's just a matter of increasing your volume, well, you got to pull a couple strings to make that happen. You know, so you've got to work with your supply chain to get those volumes up. Um, you've got to kind of retool from a manpower perspective. There might be equipment needs that you've got to address, uh, but it shouldn't be that long. I mean, top companies can do that very fast. I mean, look mm-hmm. look at how fast um, you know, like a GM repurposed you know their operations yeah. to make ventilators. If you're yeah. committed to it, you can do it pretty fast. Now it's it's not it's not free, but uh, yeah. you know often it pays itself back pretty quickly. The other ones, um, you know, it's, it's going to depend on the product. I, I think a good rule of thumb, though, to think about is very few companies are, are actually technically asset constrained. Now, this is another one of the secrets out there that, that uh, I like to tell. But, you know, companies that are claiming that they have CapEx constraints, you know, I don't have enough equipment, you know, I don't have enough floor space. Usually that's just not true. It's just not true. Never once when I, when I did an operations due diligence, did I think a CapEx plan was legitimate. I always thought it was, I always thought it was a mask. It was a mask for inefficiency, you know? So, you know, the proof is in the pudding. When you look at an operation, they, they tell you, you know, I'm equipment constrained, but they're working one shift. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you're not. That equipment is sitting in the dark for two thirds of the day. You know, you're not, you're not equipment constrained or, you know, I'm, I'm floor, floor space constrained. Well, throughput isn't, necessarily dependent on floor space if you move the volume through faster you get more and more out on the same floor space you know so it's not always uh i would say it's very infrequent that there's an asset constraint and so it's a matter of kind of material and labor that's usually what it's a matter of so if you can get the materials in if you can introduce a new supply chain and if you kind of think of it as everybody operating with the same mentality of Kind of striking while the iron's hot and playing offense and getting that up. Well, everybody's kind of cooperating in this environment where you're now trying to get that new volume. So you might have the new volume, your local suppliers, they're going to take that new volume. And now you've got a kind of a, a supply chain building up. And then it's a matter of labor. So if you've got the supply chain set up, where's all that labor coming from? And how are you doing that in a way that isn't really costly uh, with, with high friction and low flexibility? And that's where we come in. That's what we say. You guys are all working together and you can tap into the same pool. That's that's the right way to do it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I want to touch on the labor a little bit more and double click on that. But before we do, I'm curious, like if there's entrepreneurs listening to this, um, and as you were talking about this, it kind of made me think, like there are probably opportunities to start companies today where you could find, you know, products that have or companies that have like a highly fragmented global supply chain that are having a real challenge um, filling that need. Um, and, and I'm curious, how would you think about that? I mean, do you think that's an accurate statement to say? Like you could, uh, probably there's, there's maybe no better time than right now to find a product and or company that might have this highly fragmented global supply chain. They're under a lot of pressure um, and they're gonna be slow to move. Like you just maybe just generally know, like for whatever reason that company is gonna be slow to move. Do you think that's like, a realistic opportunity that entrepreneurs will be capitalizing on? I think it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I think, yeah. I think you nailed it. Um, probably the right way to, to view that is just through the demographics of manufacturing companies. You know, 99 out of a hundred manufacturing sites are small business and 60% of manufacturing GDP in the U S comes from small business. 
So we're talking about 50 or less uh, headcount. And what that means is, is contrary to popular belief, in my opinion, this is more of an opinion, but I think it's becoming more true by the day. There aren't a ton of economies of scale in the manufacturing process, you know? So there's economies of scale in, in procurement and sourcing. So if you can buy a lot from somebody, you get a discount. That's simple. But in the manufacturing process, unless it's a highly automated process, there's just, there's just not a lot of advantage to consolidation. So manufacturing actually behaves more like a, like a constant startup environment. Like you have a lot of folks that are entering the fray all the time. And you've got a lot of folks that are kind of happy with being kind of reaching a certain niche, you know, like I, I, I achieve a, you know, a scale of let's say 10 to $20 million a year. And I'm good with that. You know, it's a privately owned business, maybe a couple owners and there you go. You serve your market. So there are very few that kind of build up and build up and build up anymore. Um, and there's a lot of room for the taking. A lot of, you know, a lot of my team members, when they get exposed to this environment, they go, really, you know, there's a business for that. Well, of course there's a business for that. Where do you think sprinkler heads come from? You know, for example, where do you think the wine, the the pipes behind those things come from? Yeah, they come from somewhere. Like everything, every single thing you use comes from somewhere. And uh, every single one of those things is an opportunity. Uh, And we're going to see a lot of like changing of the guard here. You know, there's, in this space, there are a ton of, uh, let's say, aging owners, you know, who, you know, have equity in the business. They're kind of getting, getting to the point where they want to retire and, and they're ready to hand it over and handing that over to, you know, their, their, their children uh, or other family members. I don't, I'm not seeing that a lot right now. I'm seeing a lot of the, 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 the children wanting to, wanting to liquidate. Uh, or wanting to pass on the opportunity to inherit the business. There's going to be a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for M&A, a lot of opportunity for startup activity. Uh, problem is it's, it's just, it's, it's an awkward space, you know, like it takes a little bit of capital to start up, not a ton, um, or it takes a little bit of capital to acquire the business. And uh, it's usually too much for a hobbyist. And mm-hmm. it's usually too little for, for even your, your, your smaller PE shops. So it's a, it's a real, I, I think it's a really exciting space. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we, we talked a lot about the demand side, kind of the platform. And um, now let's uh, like maybe have a couple questions on the supply side and talk about the labor pool, right? It ultimately all comes back to the labor and the problem that you guys are solving there. And since you guys offer a much more kind of flexible uh, work environment, um, do the demographics of, you know, the worker on the variable platform, um, like how do they compare and contrast with what you would typically see um, in a manufacturing facility? Are they very similar, different or? Similar in terms of skills, um, Mm -hmm. but very different in terms of interest. And, you know, so, you know, skills in in our space range from uh, things like uh, warehousing or assembly, of, you know, all the way to things like tooling or welding or uh, machining. Uh, you find people with those skills everywhere. I mean, there, and there are some that are looking for jobs, others that aren't. And we see a lot of talent that aren't, that isn't in the labor force. And we're trying to bring that into the equation. And we're trying to level the playing field in the process. See, the problem with, with the manufacturing space primarily is that it's pretty rigid. You know, like if if I'm a machine shop and I'm hiring, well, I'm hiring for a certain schedule, 
right on that schedule just might not fit uh, somebody else's needs. Like I, a good example, this guy down in Houston, 26 year old guy, he's a skilled machinist. He could do everything. He could bend, cut, weld, all, you know, all the things that it takes, uh, takes a pretty long time to learn. It's a great skill, but $40 an hour is his opportunity cost. Probably. You know, that's how much a good machinist can make. And he doesn't want a job because he's got a YouTube channel, right? So Monday, Wednesday morning, he does this YouTube channel and I'm going, man, you, <laughs> you realize you're passing up on a lot of, a lot of income, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and he's going, well, I use that skill to, to sponsor my, my main passion. And that's my, my YouTube channel. And I'm thinking, you know, good for you. That's exactly how it should be. Right. I mean, yeah. that's, I think that's an honorable thing to do. So we're, that's the kind of capacity that we're trying to tap into and serve back into the market. And at the same time, leveling the playing field. You know, one of the things about hiring in the blue collar space is um, uh, I think interviews are pretty much worthless, you know, like, uh, resumes, interviews, they're, they're pretty much worthless. You got to just see how somebody acts and, and watch, watch their talent. You know, like it, the proof is in the pudding. When you, when you hire a welder, it could say 30 years of welding experience on a resume. But the first thing you do is you make them do a welding test because you just can't fake being a welder. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. a white collar yeah. job where you could just sit around <laughs> right. and nod and fake it, you know, All within right. 20 seconds, you know, if somebody's a welder or not. So that's, that's really how, how, you know, companies adjudicate whether or not somebody's appropriate for their environment. You watch how they work. And so we're trying to level the playing field. So rather than create more barriers or more tools to reduce the friction, we're just saying, get people to the point of use as quickly as possible. Like try, try them out and let them prove it. Because if you give people the incentive to do good work and remove barriers, it's a hell of a motivation. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like your example of the worker who has a YouTube channel, uh, because I think at the end of the day, like you're just giving that worker a lot of freedom. And I, I'm curious, like, so all the workers that are on your platform today, <clears throat> I would imagine that you have a decent number of them that are doing multiple things, uh, mm -hmm. right? This isn't, they're just there. They don't, you know, do the eight to five kind of normal. Um, they're working on a variable platform and they have, you know, kind of other things that they're doing, maybe related, maybe unrelated. Is that true? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's probably not what you think. Uh, we don't, we don't tend to see a lot of um, kind of composite gig economy. Sure. Type, type arrangements, you know, as it turns out, people have preferences, you know, and yep. the people that like to, to drive, for example, for, for Uber or Lyft or something, um, it's not the same, it's not the same set of interests as somebody that wants to work in a, in, in a warehouse or, or on the production line. Um, you know, people are, people are interesting, man. You know, they, they, they've got preferences and turns out they're not opportunists like people think, you know, you're not just, you're not just taking whatever you can. You have a preference and you want to go do that work. So we tend to see folks that have real constraints and it's a big portion of the population where, you know, let's say you're a single parent and your schedule is just a little crazy. Your priority is getting your kids to school or wherever they need to be. Um, but you've got time. It's just irregular. It's just in, in weird pockets. But guess what? Manufacturing companies are running all the time. You know, there, there is a time slot that works. And if we have enough scale, kind of back to the pooling concept, if we have enough scale, we can make, the, make those matches in fractions. And that's what we're trying to do because, you know, the... I think 
this uh, current pandemic is illustrating to people, I think in real time, uh, priorities. You know, I think we're seeing that. I think being, being at home make, makes things clear on what your priorities are. And I respect people that, that have constraints, that are saying, I don't care how bad things are going to get. This is one thing I'm not going to sacrifice. You know, it might be your, your community service. It might be your family. It might be a, a hobby. It might be military service. It might be school, you know, whatever it happens to be. And that precludes you from working every day from eight to five for the next 30 years. Okay, fine. Well, let's offer you something where you don't have to make that, that trade-off. No, that's great. And so if I'm, if I'm maybe a listener right now and um, I'm interested in engaging with uh, variable, uh, what do I do? You visit our website, visit our social media pages, call me, send me an email. <laughs> um, many ways to get in touch with us if you go on online, www.variableops.com. No, that's awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here, Mike. It's definitely been great to kind of get an inside look of an industry that's going through this massive change, uh, especially now. Um, and before we sign off here, are there any last thoughts you wanted to share with our listeners? No, maybe other than support your local manufacturer. You know, we're, we're realizing, I, th I think it's clear that uh, these, these are important, right? And, and there's dignity in this work. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that with you know, healthcare workers with, with medical supplies workers, with distribution, food production, all these things, you know, we're, we're reliant on this space. And, uh, you know, no matter what anybody sells, it says it's not unskilled, it's skilled and there's dignity in it. and, and it's, it's worth bringing back. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And hopefully that's one of the things that's coming out of this that's positive where into the, you know, kind of forever future, we don't take some of these things for granted anymore, because uh, there's people out there today that are um, doing really hard work that is 100% critical for, um, you know, people to, to live and get by. So um, I definitely echo that. Cool. Well, uh, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today. And to everyone listening, stay safe, healthy, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Ready, Set, Work. We love to hear from our listeners. If you have ideas, thoughts for guests, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please reach out. Tweet us at BunkerHQ using the hashtag ReadySetWork, or email us directly at hello at buildbunker.com. All right, back to work. <laughs>